Prince's Bay to Queens Plaza, Kingsbridge Road to Empire Boulevard. Across all five boroughs in 62 counties, it's 5 p.m., which means it's time for Max and Murphy, your interview and call-in show about the policies, politics, and people of New York City and New York State. I'm Jarrett Murphy from CityLimits.org. And this is Ben Max from GothamGazette.com. I heard what you did there. That was a nice little Let's royalty royal reference. Yes. motif. Uh, I'm always eager to hear how you, how you bring us on the air, so it's an exciting moment for me every week. I hope others listening as well. How you doing? I'm doing well. Good, good, good. So we are here. I mean, we're getting close. Uh, we are within three weeks now of November 6th, Election Day. We've obviously been really almost solely focused on the state elections for the last several months before the primary, since the primary. Uh, it'll be very interesting to see what we have to talk about after Election Day. But we've got plenty to talk about before Election Day as we stick to discussing the elections that are upon us. Before we get to the particular frame we're going to use today, I want to mention that speaking of Election Day, Ben and I will be hosting a special two-hour live audience edition of Max and Murphy on Election Night. That's Tuesday, November 6th, right here at WBAI in the Commons Cafe, which is at the ground level. Very cool place for a cup of coffee or, as I experienced mere moments ago, an excellent sandwich. Uh, from 5 to 7 on November 6th, we are uh, hoping a live audience will join us. We'll have some candidates, some politicians among the guests, some journalists, some talk with us and talk with the audience about their experiences. This should be a fun way to uh, to begin the uh, the election night uh, rituals. Yeah, so mark it down right now. You can come join us in Brooklyn at Commons Cafe for that live show on Tuesday, November 6th at 5 p.m. You want to arrive a little bit early before we go on air at, at 5 p.m., but we will definitely be taking audience questions and comments during the show. Who'd you vote for or who are you going to go vote for after the show? Uh, 5 to 7 p.m. on election election night. Come chat with us here for some great guests. We're lining those up uh, as we speak. And it should be a great live show as everybody that day and that night looks forward to the returns coming in. So, so for today's show, yes, for just today's final, show. Final note oh, on that ahead. is if you go to citylimits.org, and I'm sure at some point if you go to gothamgazette.com, yep. you will find a way to um, RSVP, which is necessary to make sure we have enough space for folks and we know who's coming and can communicate with you. So go ahead and do that now or after the show. We would love to have you join us on Election Day. But yes, let's talk yes. about so today's, today's show. So today, so we've been having a lot of the candidates on this show for the statewide positions. We've had all the gubernatorial candidates except Governor Cuomo. He still has an open invitation to join us, which we've reiterated to his people multiple times. But we've had the four other gubernatorial candidates who will be on the ballot. We've had AG candidates. We've had the com- several of the controller and AG candidates. We're having others coming up. Today, we're going to focus on the battle for control of the New York State Senate. This is one of the perhaps the most important and competitive elements of what's happening on election day. Governor Cuomo is very heavily favored to win re-election. Uh, the other Democrats running in the statewide races are, are heavily favored as well. But the battle over control of the state Senate, which is of utmost importance in terms of party power statewide, is really what a lot of attention is on right now as we head towards election day. So we're focusing today's show on that. And to that extent, the state elections here mirror what's going on nationally, right? I mean, question of who's going to control at least one house of the legislature on the national level is Congress, the House representatives most in play, the Senate also possibly in play. Here it is a focus only on the the state Senate because the assembly is firmly in Democratic control. And just to lay the groundwork, it is a 63-seat 
body. And right now, Republicans have a 32-seat majority because a person who was elected as a Democrat, Brooklyn's own Simca Felder, has throughout his career in Albany caucused with Republicans. And so the question is, will either party have enough to maintain or shift that balance of control and by what margin is a critical critical question right so if if every and there are there are a number of retirements happening so there's some what we would call open seats there are, i believe five in the republican conference so those seats are seen as varying levels of in play there's some incumbents on both sides of the aisle that are seen as somewhat threatened although the democratic picture is looking better in in many of these races and it's expected to be a democratic wave year but we'll see i mean each race has its own dynamics if every st- seat stayed the same and Simca Felder continues to caucus with Republicans, Republicans would hold on to the state Senate and have a one seat majority. If Democrats can net even one seat and everybody sticks with the conference that they were brought into power with, uh, Democrats would have control. They're guaranteed to keep control of the assembly. As I said, Governor Cuomo is very likely to be reelected. In that scenario, Democrats would have full control of state government in terms of passing legislation and then signing it into law, and we would have a a very interesting year upon us in 2019, but we'll see how things play out. And on today's show, in our first segment, we're going to be joined by a representative from the Democratic Party. In the second segment, uh, someone speaking on behalf of Republicans or about Republicans. And the first guest we have today who's going to join us momentarily is Senator Michael Janaris of Queens, who is not just a Democratic state senator, but he is also the chair of the Democratic Senate Campaign Committee, which means he's part and at the top of the food chain in terms of the strategy behind Democrats winning control. So let's bring Senator Janaris on with us now. Senator Janaris, welcome to WBAI. Max and Murphy, you're talking to Jarrett Murphy from City Limits and Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us. And yeah, just to, to pick up where Ben left off, tell us what you think uh, the state of the race is. What uh, what does it feel like to you? What does the landscape feel like? How many seats are in play? What's your overall take? It feels great. And uh, I liken it to for people that follow the federal uh, politics. Uh, an easy way to think of it is the Democrats are seem to be favored to take the House, but having a tougher time in the U.S. Senate because the field of play uh, is cutting against them in the sense that there are more Democratic seats at risk than Republican seats. Here in New York State, we have the opposite in our state Senate uh, races. We have a situation where the field is very large. There's probably about a dozen races that are at various stages of competitiveness, but only one of those is a democratically held seat. Uh, and so in a situation where we only need to net one seat, we're only defending one and they're defending about 10. Uh, we're feeling very good about our chances in a year when democratic uh, turnout is, uh, is reaching historic levels for an off year. So take us a little bit further into the details there. Uh, Of those dozen seats, you have to have a few that you think are perhaps most attainable. Where are you looking for the the results um, most especially in terms of those dozen seats? Are there a few that you can identify that you think or are you already directing resources to be put into over others? Uh, of course, and I can I can break it down to two uh, broad categories, and uh, one are the uh, seats that you earlier referenced as open seats, uh, seats where Republican incumbents are retiring, and uh, uh, there is no incumbent seeking re-election. 
there are five of those, uh, and we believe they're and they're scattered throughout the state. We believe they're all competitive. One in Syracuse, one in the Capital Region, two in the Hudson Valley, and one on Long Island, uh, where we feel our chances are very, very good. Um, uh, and beyond that, then we have Republican incumbents that are vulnerable. Uh, and you can start uh, by looking at uh, right here in New York City in, uh, in Brooklyn, where we, Andrew Grenardis is doing a great job against Marty Golden, who just embarrasses himself more and more by the day, including uh, just this week discovering that one of his staff uh, members was responsible for the Proud Boys being invited um, to the uh, Republican Club uh, in Manhattan. Um, uh, out on Long Island, Carl Marcelino and Elaine Phillips both won their elections two years ago with uh, about a 1% margin of victory, uh, and we believe we have a really good shot at, uh, at securing those seats. Uh, and then off into the Hudson Valley, uh, we have uh, Karen Smythe, which is a, a district held previously by a Democrat, by uh, Terry Gibson, in the not-too-distant past, uh, who is running against Sue Serino. Uh, and, uh, and on up through the Hudson Valley, Pat Strong is doing a great job against George Amador, and Pete Harkham against Terry uh, Murphy uh, in a northern Westchester and Putnam County district. So the opportunities are many. Uh, you can see from our public filings where we're already dedicating resources, but it's in a lot of the districts I've already mentioned. Uh, and our fundraising is going well enough that we believe we're going to get into additional districts in the next three weeks. Tell me about how the races you just talked about interact with other races on the slate for November 6th. I mean, obviously, the statewide contests don't appear to be competitive. I don't know how that affects uh, your chances, your hopes for turnout. But I know in some of the districts you've talked about, there are also potentially competitive congressional races. Uh, Do you see that as a factor in driving turnout or the electoral conversation one way or the other? I do, but more so than that. I mean, that's at the margins. What's really happening is these races have all become nationalized, uh, and you saw the turnout spike uh, in the primaries. Um, what's happening, is, as we understand it, is Democrats, uh, female Democrats in particular, are very activated uh, by the Trump administration, by the Trump presidency, uh, and have decided to take their country back. And that means they are going to vote and get involved in local races and primaries and general elections. They are coming out uh, at, at every opportunity to exercise their right to vote, and we're expecting that to carry through on November 6th. When you are explaining to voters um, what's at stake here in New York in terms of control of the state Senate, how do you describe that in a in a short conversation? You know, obviously, if you had a, a long time to sit with someone, that might be a little bit of a different conversation. But, you know, in sort of the a shorter soundbite type of conversations that you might have with people at some uh, fundraising events or when you're just trying to convince someone maybe at a subway stop or whatever it might be. What are the things that you talk about when you say um, what's at stake in terms of control of the state Senate? I say we have uh, an opportunity to lead the nation uh, in standing up uh, for progressive values and pushing back against what's coming out of Washington, and we have lost that opportunity. In in the bluest of blue states, we have lost that opportunity because uh, an artificial Republican majority in the Senate has stopped us from voting on the types of things that we should be voting on. Uh, Roe versus Wade, as everyone knows, is under threat after the Kavanaugh confirmation, uh, and yet we can't pass uh, the Reproductive Health Act here in New York 
to protect New York's women in case uh, Roe is overturned. Uh, we want to uh, pass uh, sensible uh, gun regulations in New York. We have to say it back already, but we want to pass a, uh, a red flag bill. We want to pass uh, improvements to the background check system, and yet the Republicans won't let us have a vote uh, on those. We want to make it easier for people to vote. Uh, we're one of the few states that doesn't have early voting or automatic registration or same-day registration or any of the ways that we can improve our democracy, and yet Republicans won't let us have a vote on these issues. We want to change our campaign finance laws to make them uh, better. We want to improve our ethics laws. We want to increase access to health care. We want to increase uh, our uh, assistance to education throughout this state. Uh, we need to improve the laws for the tenants of New York, and the rent laws expire next year. I ended up giving you the long answer after all. But <laughs> That's right. That's a list. But let me let me follow up on that real quickly. On the flip side of things, Republicans are out there campaigning and saying, we must keep Republican control of the state Senate. Otherwise, Democrats will run wild with state government, raise taxes, push a government uh, control of health care, you know, a single payer type system, uh, take away your, you know, your right to bear arms, all sorts of, you know, some of the flip side of some of the things that you mentioned. Um, Right, and we're confident. We're confident and comfortable letting the people make that choice. Uh, what I always like to say is if people think Albany has been working for them, keep things as they are, which means elect a Republican Senate. If people are sick of Albany uh, and the games played in Albany uh, and the uh, lack of progress in Albany, it's time for a change. And we represent that change. I listed a whole series of issues that people could see progress on with the Democratic majority. If the voters agree with me, they should vote for our candidates. If they don't, they should vote for the Republicans. So if they want to say, yes, we're worried people are going to take too many guns off the streets and people agree with them, then by all means, go vote for them. Uh, we're comfortable taking the position that we should have fewer guns on the streets and especially out of the hands of people who are dangerous and shouldn't have them. Uh, and this is what elections are about. We lay out our values and the people get to decide uh, which they prefer. Do you think that the some of the issues you've talked about, uh, sitting where we are, they obviously have great resonance. Um, tenant protections in New York City, a major issue every year. Gun protections obviously come into play here on a daily basis in terms of dealing with street crime. Are those as resonant in some of the less urban, more rural upstate districts that you've talked about? Is is it really a, a statewide message that appeals to the kind of voters you're you're targeting? Every region has their own concerns. So the rent laws specifically are almost exclusively applicable to New York City. So people outside the city don't really have uh, those kinds of protections. Uh, but when it comes to uh, sensible gun laws, yeah, you better believe the people on Long Island and Westchester and in the Hudson Valley care a great deal about that issue as well. When it comes to getting uh, greater access to health care, people upstate are, are suffering as much as anybody uh, with the lack of health care options. Uh, when you're talking about who wants a good education in this state, that applies to everybody. So yes, absolutely, these are things that uh, that we find uh, are applicable to the entire state. Now, some things are more regional and more local. The, the suburbs, for example, are the ones who are suffering the most as a result of the federal uh, uh, cap on uh, state and local tax deductibility. Uh, and so uh, the fact that Republican actions are going to raise their taxes by, uh, in, by uh, exponentially uh, next year is something that is particularly uh, acute for those voters. Uh, but overall, the message of a progressive Democratic majority is uh, something we're using everywhere. 
Talk about the level of coordination. You know, there's <laughs> there's always been discussion um, that uh, on both sides of the aisle, there are fractures within the parties. Um, we obviously can talk about that with Republicans in terms of folks that are, you know, fully Trump supporting and never Trumper type folks. But on the Democratic side as well, there's been some division. There's been some name calling and finger pointing. What's the level of coordination right now among your Senate campaign committee Governor Cuomo's team and the New York State Democratic Party? Uh, well, it seems that we're all working towards the same goal. Uh, the DSCC uh, is spending millions of dollars to support our candidates. I think we're going to spend more this year than we've spent at any time since I've been in the Senate. Uh, and that's a testament to the support we're getting from uh, people all over the state who want a Democratic majority. Uh, the state party, as I understand it, is doing uh, doing work uh, that started recently with some uh, TV ads uh, on Long Island, which is certainly going to be helpful because those are some of our most competitive races. Uh, and uh, as long as we're all advocating the same thing, which is the election of our candidates, I think it's great. We're on the line with uh, Senator Michael Janaris, who is a state senator from Queens and the chairman of the Democratic uh, State Senate Campaign Committee. Uh, senator, I'm curious, Governor Cuomo, his role in boosting Democratic chances to retake the Senate is something that's been talked about in a lot of recent cycles. Is he doing all he can to boost the chances of candidates whom you think have a chance of uh, taking some of these swing seats? Well, it, it appears the state party, which is obviously uh, uh, acting in large part at his direction, uh, is spending real money uh, to help elect our candidates. So, yes, I think this year, more than any other year, we're seeing uh, a significant effort uh, and resources put uh, into these districts to help uh, elect our candidates. You... Um Obviously, we're, we're no friend uh, with the IDC, the Independent Democratic Conference. Um, that was that was a source of consternation, as I mentioned, in terms of some of the division on the Democratic side of the aisle. Um, six, <laughs> six out of the six out of the eight former members of the IDC lost in the Democratic primaries. However, we now see Senator Tony Avella saying he's going to continue on in the general election. We haven't really heard what Senator Jeff Klein is going to do, who is the leader of the IDC. He's basically been radio silence since losing the Democratic primary. And and almost all of these senators or all of them have other ballot lines to run on, which is why Senator Avella can continue on and why we're wondering about what Jeff Klein and Jesse Hamilton and maybe some others are going to do. Uh, what's your message to them? What's your sense of what uh, especially Jeff Klein is going to do? And what do you think about what Tony Avella has said he's doing? My message to them is that uh, when the primaries were underway, they all professed to be good Democrats, uh, and so opposing the Democratic nominee is not a way to show that they were being truthful. Um, I don't happen to think any of them uh, can win if they try to push through uh, on independent line. These are very Democratic districts for the most part, uh, and the candidates that won the primaries are well-positioned. Uh, we are supporting the Democratic nominees, including John Liu, which seems to be the only district in which there is someone who is active advocating for people to vote on minor party lines. Uh, and I'm confident uh, November 6th, all uh, six of those uh, primary victors will will be senators. 
We only have a few minutes left, but if you have a question for Senator Janaris, please give us a call at 347-335-0818. Quick question, we'll patch you in. Uh, Senator, I'm curious, just looking beyond Election Day for a second, which I know is getting ahead of ourselves, uh, assuming that elections go the way we expect them to, you'll have the two remaining members or the two surviving former members of the IDC in the Democratic uh, Conference. You'll also have Simca Felder elected as a Democrat, but perhaps continuing to caucus as a Republican. Uh, what do you think about how much those two former IDC members will be part of the Democratic agenda? Is it total unity? And is there any chance of convincing Felder to rejoin the party that uh, that he, at least in name, belongs to? Well, I would hope soon after we get to a new session with a Democratic majority, we could uh, stop uh, referencing IDC in the present tense. So the, the members that were once part of the IDC and uh, are now part of the Democratic conference who uh, have uh, uh, who won their primaries, uh, Senator Carlucci and Senator Savino, um, have both. Uh, we had a we had a meeting of our members uh, a couple of weeks back, and they were both there and uh, were professing their their uh, support and loyalty to the conference and i don't expect we'll uh we'll have an ongoing problem with them uh, as for senator felder uh he has said throughout the years that he's happy to sit with whichever side of the majority so i would not at all be surprised after we win november 6th to, to have a plus one uh, added to our number and so speaking of some of these developments that have occurred um as part of the unity deal to bring the idc back into the fold a few months back um there were some shifting around of the leadership positions but now that senator klein has lost the primary and is very unlikely to win in the general are you expecting with a democratic majority to um to be the deputy leader behind uh leader stewart cousins if if you guys are successful all the leadership decisions will be made by Leader Stuart Cousins after November 6th. Uh, I have been privileged to serve as her deputy and to uh, continue to be her right hand uh, in the conference, no matter what my title was. Um, but I can't get ahead of her. That's her decision to make. And whatever capacity she chooses to, uh, to ask me to serve, and I'm happy to continue to, to serve her in the conference. So do you think that uh, assuming Democrats, uh, as I'm, I'm sure you're hoping, take the majority, maybe a, a multi-seat majority, a little more secure than either party has enjoyed in recent years uh, in the Senate after the elections in November, is there a cohesive agenda uh, going forward? Uh, it's obviously a, a big conference, a lot of different areas, a lot of different spots on the ideological map. Where do you see true uh, unity? Where might a voter who is going to check back in with us, say, in June or July, reasonably expect to see concrete results in the first uh, you know, six months or so of a new session with the Democratic majority? What will that translate to in terms of concrete policy? There are some issues that are relatively uncomplicated and easy to pass, and there are others that will require some work and some collaboration and some discussion within our conference. A lot of that depends on how big our conference is and uh, whether we need every single vote or uh, or not. Uh, but I think I gave you the list earlier in our in our interview. But you can expect quick progress on uh, on the RHA, quick progress on voting rights and voting reforms, uh, quick progress on uh, on. Uh, 
gun, uh, sensible gun laws, uh, quick progress on campaign finance reform. The things that are that require a deeper dive and uh, require a little more discussion uh, will probably be things that we will take up uh, after the budget. Was, as you know, the, the session's really broken up into pre-budget and post-budget uh, time. Uh, and I think uh, May and June uh, is going to be a very active uh, time for us as we dig into some of those deeper issues. And what would you, so in that bucket, you're talking about potentially considering some sort of single-payer healthcare system. You're talking about the rent regulations. What else, is there anything else on that list that you, you consider the maybe the thornier things that need to be post-budget? Well, those are two very big ones. And uh, the rent laws expire uh, right around uh, June, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and so certainly that's going to create pressure to... Um to make those changes uh, before the, the current law expires. Uh, but yes, uh, uh, healthcare access uh, is going to be something we take up then as well. Uh, and there will be there will be other big issues that emerge that we're going to have to really, oh, and I should, I should never let go unsaid one of the most important issues to me, which is the authority issue of the MTA. I was just going to ask uh, about that. Funding. <laughs> um, yeah, it's yeah. Uh, obviously of great importance to me. I serve on the uh, MTA Sustainability Task Force that's coming up with recommendations by year's end. Uh, but that's obviously something that has bedeviled uh, the state for a long time and uh, hopefully one that uh, we can make some progress on this year. But isn't there uh, an expectation, at least the governor has set the expectation that a congestion pricing plan will be passed in the budget? Uh, I support congestion pricing. Uh, I I worry that it's not going to be enough uh, to get the MZ where it needs. Uh, There are people uh, in both the Assembly and in the Senate uh, on both sides of the aisle that have problems with congestion pricing. We're, we're going to try and win them over, but there's a lot of work to be done on that issue. Uh, and uh, I don't think that that alone is the silver bullet that solves the MTA crisis. So we have even more work to do beyond that. Okay. Well, I think we're going to have to leave it there. Perhaps we'll have you back on after Election Day to uh, either gloat or eat some crow or discuss uh, <laughs> either way where, where we're headed or more about congestion pricing. Um, but Senator Michael Janaris, thanks for joining us here today. Thanks a lot, guys. All right, take care. back on Max and Murphy on WBAI 99.5 FM listener sponsored non-commercial radio coming to you from Brooklyn if you want to make your WBAI pledge and support the station and all the great stuff it does the number is 516-620-3602 Ben Max we just finished hearing from Senator Michael Janaris of Queens who is the chairman of the Democratic Senate Campaign Committee talking about the 10 or so districts that he feels are in play thinking that he is or at least arguing that he is to some degree in the catbird seat in that Democrats are defending merely one seat and talking, I thought very interestingly, a question we were going to ask him that he answered himself, that he feels these state Senate races have been nationalized and that uh, Donald Trump is a significant driving factor in these really rather local races. And I think there's some good evidence to back that up. I mean, I think that what we saw, as he mentioned, in terms of turnout in the primary was certainly part of uh, voters' opportunity especially Democratic voters, first opportunities really, um, you know, to vote in mass in the post-Trump world. Uh, We saw a huge uptick in voter turnout. And I really don't think that that had that much to do with the fact that Governor Cuomo is, you know, was trying to get the nomination for a third term or Cynthia Nixon was challenging him or 
some of the primaries that we saw, I think they had a role, but I think overall the the energy has a lot more to do with uh, the Trump backlash among Democrats than, than really anything else. And it's very likely that that is going to help boost Democratic state Senate and Democratic congressional, congressional candidates here in New York in November. I thought uh, the senator sounded, um, what's the word, warily optimistic about the level of coordination between uh, the various Democratic campaign apparatuses, uh, the state Senate campaign committee, the state party, the governor, uh, that there is, is actually a higher degree of coordination now than in recent cycles, which perhaps is not a high bar to clear. But it seemed as though without without maybe looking to uh, to trumpet it too much, he did feel as though there was some productive cooperation going on. I'm, I'm glad you phrased it all like that and, and caught that because I think that, you know, Senator Generis, as everybody heard, um, you know, is a very sort of calm character a lot of the time. And he, he's obviously very into the work that he's doing, both politically and policy wise, you know, but he doesn't get too excited, too emotional, etc. So it's a little bit hard to tell sometimes what he's thinking. And, you know, we don't I don't want to read too much into how he was coming across. But you know, there always seems like there's a little bit of a gap between what he and others pushing for a Democratic state Senate want and what Governor Cuomo is doing. And he also didn't fully seem to indicate that they're always aware of what the other parties are doing. I mean, he sort of said, it seems like they're doing some ads for these state Senate candidates on Long Island. And yes, the state party and Governor Cuomo have put out ads where they're talking about Governor Cuomo needs so-and-so in the state Senate and needs a Democratic Senate to to pass certain legislation that Senator Generis even mentioned on the list. But he didn't indicate, you know, we worked with the state party on these ads, right? So there was a definitely some reading between the lines that can be done there, but I don't want to go too far with that because like I said, sometimes Senator Generis, you can't really read his his cards. The careful man. I think talking about lists was interesting because he described there toward the end, you know, thinking about these issues that Democrats have put on the table as being in play, as being important reasons to vote for a Democratic Senate, countering those Republican arguments you mentioned about having essentially single party government and what that would be fiscal and how that would um, generally affect the state of politics in, the, in in New York. Talking about those issues that he feels are relatively simple, reproductive rights, expanding uh, gun laws, and some campaign finance reforms, and those that are more difficult, including single-payer um, And he didn't even use those words, right? He just used expanding access to health care, so healthcare, he was pretty right. careful on Exactly. That. Mm-hmm. Interesting, the division between those two issues and um, you know, getting into the harder ones is really, is really the, the robin and, and where, you know, let's remember the the IDC, which he would like to speak about in the past tense and 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 basically <laughs> can be spoken about in the past tense, was not the first disunity among Democrats. Um, you know, obviously there was the coup in an earlier era um, and the question of whether cohesion can be maintained on some of those bigger ticket issues, especially as they all are in a mix together where you have the potential for some sort of big, ugly compromise that leaves everyone unhappy. Uh, that'll be fascinating and, and very important to see, uh, see how it plays out. And as we said before, we have to really see what Governor Cuomo wants to prioritize, what he's willing to compromise on. There are going to be serious financial discussions that have to happen, which legislators don't always want to talk about, but the governor uh, certainly has to keep as perhaps more of a priority. Uh, and he has been one to be more careful than some Democrats have wanted him to be about uh, things like raising taxes and and certain you know spending priorities. So there's a lot that's 
to be determined and that will have to be worked out. And we'll obviously cover all of that if there is a change in control of the state Senate. But we don't know that that's a guarantee as confident as Senator Janaris uh, expressed. Moving on in our conversation today, uh, we are now going to be joined by Tom Doherty, who is a partner at Mercury, a public affairs consultancy. And Tom was formerly a top aide to Governor George Pataki. And we want to get Tom's perspective on all the things that are happening in this New York election cycle, and especially some things related to the statewide candidates, such as gubernatorial candidate Mark Molinaro, and why he doesn't seem to be taking off, doesn't have that much money in the bank, or if he perhaps will down the stretch and pull off the type of upset that we saw with George Pataki quite a few years ago. So, Tom Doherty, welcome to WBAI. You're on with Ben Max and Jarrett Murphy. Thanks for joining us. Tom, you with us? All right. Looks I'm, like we don't have Tom have right now. But we'll, uh, I, am, oh. I am here. Can you guys hear me? Now we can. Yeah. Hi, Tom. <laughs> oh, good. Hi, guys. Good to, good to have you on. How you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining us. So before we get into all sorts of nitty gritty here, uh, from your perspective, how do you sort of see the landscape of these state elections this year, especially the, the gubernatorial race? Well, look, I, I mean, you know, Mark Molinaro is, is a phenomenal candidate. Uh, if you were going to pick a Republican candidate in Northeast, you know, in the Northeast, um, you need a George Pataki-like moderate Republican to compete in the places like Connecticut, New Jersey, New York, Massachusetts, etc. He's a great guy. He has no state party operation behind him. He has no money behind him. In a state that, you know, I keep hearing about these comparisons to George Pataki, New York is not the George Pataki in New York in 1994, uh, where you were fighting to go get the conservative party endorsement because you needed that. Um, you Quite frankly, you don't want that today in New York State. Um, the state has moved farther to the left. Um, and and the idea that somehow people are actually saying that uh, that Mark could could pull an upset, I don't know what world they're living in. Uh, again, I think he'd be a great governor. But all of the things that George Pataki had in 1994, a United States senator by the name of D'Amato, a finance director by the name of Charlie Gargano, a state chairman by the name of Bill Powers, and state senators and party chairmen around the state who every time we landed a plane somewhere or got off the helicopter uh, were there with massive rallies. Uh, none of that exists for Mark this time around. And that's sad. And why is that? Tom, how did we get there? I mean, is that the state moved to the left? There is no effective Republican infrastructure. Which of those is the chicken and which of those uh, is the egg, do you think? It, it is a combination of a couple of things. It is a combination of, of, of one, certainly Trump does not help this year. Uh, but you can't blame Donald Trump. Uh, you have to go back and look at who has been the state party leadership. Uh, look, Ed Cox, I've said this, and I've said this, Ed Cox is you know, right to him. Uh, I've known Ed Cox since the, the, the mid-90s during the Pataki term when I was the governor's appointment secretary, and I had appointed him, you know, the governor wanted him on the, the, the SUNY board. Uh, he's a wonderful man. Uh, but I've known a lot of wonderful men who should not be the party leader. 
uh, running a state party um, it takes uh, not not I mean hard work obviously and, and Ed Cox is a hardworking person but you need to get sort of your priorities straight and that first and foremost you need one to raise a lot of money you need to have a cohesive message on a daily basis that resonates from Buffalo to Long Island and where it needs to be different get your people talking about the same thing to motivate your local bases uh, and then attract candidates um, that uh, that you are running every single race like they did in Erie County when Tom Reynolds w- was running Erie County. And there was a time when Erie County was just you know, a Democratic bastion, right? And Tom Reynolds said enough is enough. We're going to take them on at every single level. It's going to be at the town council. It's going to be for the assembly. It's going to be for the Senate. It's going to be for county executive. It's going to be for the sheriff's race. We're going to run races against you. And, you know, it was very sad, like in, 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 in the mayoral race last time around, Nicole, who who I think the world of. We had had such a phenomenal ticket. We had an African-American. We had a Hispanic. We had a woman. Nobody in the state of New York knew that we had such a diverse ticket in the city of New York running. Why? They had no money. Uh, and that should never be an excuse. And so when, when Ed is, is loaning money to the state party, which, you know, I give him a lot of credit to help out, that's a bad sign. Uh, you know, the, the state party, there are enough wealthy Republicans and others in this state that, look, you should be building a party, uh, particularly at a time when you know, there's a lot of Democratic conflict going on, right? That There was a lot of battles uh, for, for, for the, the primary they had going on. You have a mayor and a governor who clearly don't get along. Um, and, and we have done nothing to go into the inner cities and say, we can be an option for you. Um, and in a state like New York, that's what you need to do. Can I ask, over the, pa- over the past three or four cycles, I wonder if part of the reason that money hasn't uh, materialized for Republicans is because some of it has gone to Governor Cuomo, who, you know, op- occupying some area of the center has, he's taken a lot of the real estate money that traditionally might have gone mm-hmm. to Republicans. Is that is that part of the, the picture? And perhaps some some um, uh, um, uh, uh, concern about uh, donating to the other side and earning the governor's uh, ire. There's no question about that. That that is always the case, and every uh, challenger sees that. Uh, and so, uh, it's no different this year than it was five years ago or ten years previously. When George Pataki ran in 1994, how many people? How many of the traditional people that that play into that world every single day are either hedging their bets or concerned that? I can't do that. Uh, That's a very valid question. However, there are clearly enough outside people uh, who really don't rely on or don't care about Governor Cuomo's IRA that that would be interested in building a party if they felt their money was going to be well spent. Uh, And so it is the chicken and the egg. What comes first? Do you need to have a party or do you need to have candidates? I think that you need to have a combination of any of everything, and you need local leaders, um, sixty you know plus county leaders around the state, all working with the same message, um, and, and not a defeative, defeatist message. Because look, quite frankly, it's the same people over and over and over again uh, that that keep producing candidates over and over and over again 
that 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 don't have the the uh, the, the needed support to, to get to the next level. And, and in a lot of cases, the, the party's got to do a much much better job, a much better job. So going back to the start of your comments about you know Mark Molinaro being the type of gubernatorial candidate Republicans should run in a state like New York or some of the other Northeast states that lean or are pretty significantly more Democratic, but there are lots of independents and and moderate Democrats, conservative Democrats, you know, yeah. who have voted for people like Rudy Giuliani or George Pataki. Uh, what? What should a Republican like Mark Molinaro be running on? What should be you know that unified message that you say uh, Republicans in New York need? What should be some of the the tenets of that? We spend too much; taxes are too high, and and, and so the the message of and he's running and, on and, that, and, yeah, but, but he doesn't again, have the support. Well, he doesn't have the money to get mm-hmm. that message out there. Who, who knows that? I mean, look, me, we, we do this for a living, right? right? So we pay attention to Twitter, right? That's how me and you met. Sure. Right? We, we, we see each other on Twitter, right? <laughs> but, but let's be honest about it, right? We're in a little, little vacuum of hearing the same old stuff over and over again. Go ask the average person in New York who's the Republican nominee for governor. Oh yeah, no, he's got he's got major major name recognition problems, and like you said, that goes back to money, and and the money situation is is pretty dire. If you if you think about it, right? If you if you had, and there's no question that there are issues in the state of New York, and and they start with the MTA. That's a problem for a lot of people. That's a problem for a lot of Democrats who, who, who are in the city or in the suburbs where Republicans have not done well lately. Those are people who are affected by the LIIR, the, by Metro North. Not so much Metro North, but the, certainly the New York City subway system. Um, if you had the money to talk about those things, if you had the idea to talk about some of the, 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 the corruption problems that, that have occurred in this administration, you just can't get the message out there, though. And that's where it comes to, you know, it was really interesting during the 94 campaign when I was traveling with Governor Pataki. One of the things that really impressed me during that campaign was as we traveled around, the governor would be in Buffalo in the morning and we wind up the afternoon, maybe uh, on the tip of Long Island. Throughout the day, we had surrogates all over the state talking about the same message day in and day out, what we were talking about. There's no convoluted message. If we were up in Buffalo with Tom Reynolds talking about taxes, we finished a day on the tip of Long Island talking about taxes. If we were up in Syracuse the next morning talking about criminal justice and the death penalty, et cetera, when we finished that evening in Westchester County with the press conference, we were talking about it. Our surrogates were talking about it throughout the day. And so it was a drumbeat of a, of a message. We don't have that. And that really hurts, Mark, that, that he's the sole voice of running around trying to drive a message at a time when he should be on TV, he should be on radio, um, you know, backing it up with, 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 with rating points. Um, and, and, you know, we keep going back to the same old thing. He doesn't have the money to do it. 
We're on WBAI 99.5 FM, Max and Murphy Show, listening to Tom Doherty, a, uh, a person with Mercury Public Affairs, former official in the Pataki administration, former local official in Tuckahoe and Eastchester. And I'm curious, Tom, you know, it's very likely, if you look at the polls, that the Democrats are going to win the statewide offices. It is possible, as we've just heard from Michael Janaris, that the state Senate will become democratically controlled. That's not a given mm-hmm. by any means, but it, it's possible. And it's possible there'll be some significant margin to that. Are Republicans thinking about, or should they be thinking about, how they're going to live, so to speak, in the wilderness? And how do they handle the next two years being uh, totally out of power in the state? What's a smart way to approach that very likely possibility, given some of the problems that do do exist, as you said, in terms of infrastructure and funding? No, look, what will happen is, and more than likely, they will lose the state Senate. Um, you know, if you look at the Marcelino race, if you, if you, if you look at uh, the former Larkin seat, I mean, two that stick out to me as real problems for us. Um, and there could be others, but those are the two that I think that flip it. Uh, you then need to say, we need to clean house. The people that are there now need to say, we had our chance, time and time again, we had our chance, and we have yet to win a statewide office since George Pataki left. I mean, we haven't even come close to winning a statewide office. And in the meantime, we've now lost the state Senate for the second time. Um, At some level, the leaders need to be uh, responsible for that. And if you care, you say, look, and again, I don't I don't sit here. You know, I know what it's like to be in those fights. It's hard work, but we're in a business of wins and losses. No matter how much I may like somebody, if you keep losing, if if, for instance, you know, I love Eli Manning. I'm a huge Eli Manning fan for 15 years, but Eli keeps losing. It's time for a change. And so that's how we have to look at my party and say, we need to change. We can't go on with a one-party uh, a, a one party state where the Democrats are controlling the assembly by, by numbers that will never change, right? We will never get in that ballgame. But the state Senate, redistricting is coming up, et cetera. You got to think it's going to get worse. Um, and then you have to focus on how do we win a statewide election in this state? It's hard. And, and so what what do you tell voters? I mean, you know, it sounds like you're you're somewhat resigned in part because, um, you know, we know that this year has all this sort of uh, anti-Trump backlash and, and Democrats seem quite motivated if the primaries uh, told us anything to come out and vote in this uh, really this first statewide uh, post-Trump election. Um, but but what do you you know, what's your message or what do you think should be the message in some of these state Senate districts uh, in terms of Republicans? trying to keep some semblance of control. And one thing I notice is is that some of the message is that, you know, Republicans in the state Senate are the only chance that you, you know, voters have for keeping some sort of checks and balances and state Senate candidates and the state Senate leadership seem to be writing off uh, Mark Molinaro's, you know, chances in that message. Uh, I have yet to see a poll where that, what you just stated, came up as an issue to the average voter. The checks and balance, they don't care about that. They care about how does this election affect me in my pocketbook? How does it affect me in my job? 
how does it affect my family? They don't think far enough in advance that, well, Jesus, if I vote for this Democrat, that means the Republicans are going to lose it. No, they don't think like that. And so the, the, there needs to be what is the Republican message? And, and every district is different, obviously, right? You're going to have districts in upstate New York where the, the, the SAFE Act matters. Uh, right. Guns matter up there to, 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 to different groups, et cetera, et cetera. So you're not going to run that message uh, out on Long Island. Uh, in Long Island, you're going to run a, a property tax message because taxes matter to, to a Long Island homeowner. Uh, if the Democrats are in charge, my God, they're going to raise my taxes again. They want to spend, and, you know, the, the same stuff. Um, and I think that the hope going forward for the Republicans would be, you know, if you look at the Crowley, you know, election, his loss on, on primary night, a perfect example, I think, of, of, of the far left in New York uh, sort of creeping in and sort of taking over the Democratic Party. I don't think that bodes well for the Democratic Party, because I do think that presents an opportunity for Republicans uh, to, to, to sort of win things back going forward. Um but again, you have to start with building a party that people don't look at with sort of fear in their eyes of going, oh, I can never, I, now let alone vote, I can't vote for them, let alone ever join that party. And a lot of that comes from our National Republican Party because that party, the National Republican Party, is much different than our local party here in New York. And it should be. It's different. We, we, we kind of stand for different types of things. Um, and, and, you know, where we should be, we should be pro-immigration in New York and fighting for the rights of immigrants, et cetera, et cetera, uh, and, and not sort of the Republican national message, because that, that's certainly hurting us in New York. Headlines this week have been dominated by this incident um, involving the Proud Boys group and some Antifa protesters at a Republican club. Uh, obviously, there's a lot to talk about in terms of, of what went into that event and the policing of the protests, and that's been the subject of a lot of good coverage. But I'm curious, thinking about the message that the uh, Republican Party here projects, the people who are drawn to the Proud Boys, some of them young men uh, looking for some sort of a place to engage politically, um, maybe some of them are, are salvageable toward a, a less um, fringy sort of exercise. Do you Are you worried about the Proud Boys and that movement creeping into local Republican politics? Is there a message that Republican politicians can provide to people who might be attracted to that that is more positive and, 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 and less violent, less hateful? Well, I'm always concerned when, when, we, when we try to be or attract uh, extremists on any wing. I mean, I think that has really damaged American politics. Uh, the, the reason that we have such a problem in this country right now is that there are no more moderates. The gerrymandering, what it did is that it meant that you had districts that the only way you could win a district is by running to the extreme, whether you ran to the far left or far to the far right. And in many cases, the ones that we've seen more and more of is in my party where, you know, you, you had people who clearly, um, you know, you, you had U.S. Senate races with, with, with Thad Cochran down in Mississippi where they were saying he's too liberal. I, I don't know where in what world that would be the case. 
Um, and so that is a problem uh, that I, I don't want fringes, fringe people, and I don't think any fringe people would help the New York Republican Party. Um, if your views are so extreme that, that, that you're sort of to the far right, uh, well, th- that's not going to be helpful to the Republican Party in New York. So we're in our last couple of minutes here with Tom Doherty, partner at Mercury um, and former top aide to Governor George Pataki, who won three terms and is the last Republican to win statewide in New York when he won his third term in 2002. And Tom's sharing some of his thoughts on where the Republican Party is and needs to go here in New York. It, it, it strikes me and I keep, you know, I keep coming back to this issue and, and you know, I, I, I want to know where you stand on this, you know, that, that Mark Molinaro in this election year was really in a very difficult position because there are so many Republicans in New York. And I'm not even talking about the leadership, Republican voters who voted for, for Donald Trump and for Mark Molinaro to have any possible path to victory in a gubernatorial race. And he didn't vote for Donald Trump. So he he was, as you said, at the top of the segment, he was the probably the, the right type of candidate for, for New York Republicans to run. But for him to, to have any shot, he probably had to totally, you know, move away from a lot of that Republican base. But that leaves him a little bit in the in the wilderness, unless there's a real strategy around doing that. Or, or how do you do that? I mean, how do you, if you're Mark Molinaro, how do you capture that Republican base? in New York and get a bunch of the moderates and the independents that are needed? Well, look, you have to, I had this conversation with someone who was interested in running statewide and and this question came up, is that how do you balance those two problems? The the, the one problem being is that um, you are not a Trump supporter and so you're not going to be screaming that loud because you don't want to offend the Trump voter in New York, which you desperately need. On the other hand, um, you you obviously need to go attract the voters in the center. Look, my feeling is is on that is that being honest with the voter matters. And and quite frankly, is that many of those people that we view as the the base Trump voter, uh, where are they going? Right. I got to imagine if you're that voter, many of those voters are really uh, ticked off about the SAFE Act. Uh, they tend to be, I would think, in, in many cases, somewhat to the right. Uh, and they're certainly not going to be voting for Andrew Cuomo. And so you would really have to go a, a – it would be very difficult for you to offend them, I think, in that matchup. Right. Once right. you have a Republican candidate, you know, they're going to come in. They're, they're generally going to vote for you. Uh, but your only issue is question. if they don't come out to vote. Right. So you, you, you got to get them out, but also focus most of your campaign in the middle. You always do. Mm-hmm. Elections are always about the middle. Where are the independents voting? The problem in New York is you have so few Republicans in terms of the numbers versus Democrats that you have to get so many of the independents in your corner. Not only do you have to make sure your guys come out to vote, and this year that's a problem because Democrats very much seem very energized, uh, extremely energized, uh, that um, it, it just made it more difficult for them. But that, 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 that's the perfect question is that you need those voters. You don't want to be that guy. You know, Cuomo's calling him the mini Trump. That's just unfair. I mean, Mark Molinaro is not anywhere in right. that. He's, he's a reasonable Republican and a great guy. Well. 
Tom, we're going to have to leave it there, but we really appreciate the time and the thoughts. And uh, I, th- I think personally, you made a pretty good case to be the next chair of the state Republican Party in, in New York. Uh, or the next know. quarterback for the Giants. <laughs> right, exactly. Well, well can, I, can, I, can I leave you with 30 seconds? Sure. Is that my dream job always was state chairman of the Republican Party. Hey. Governor Pataki knew that and picked Sandy Treadwell. <laughs> <laughs> he called. He called me from the state convention when John Faso was nominated from Long Island and said, "Doherty, I just want to tell you, I made a mistake. I should have made you the state chairman." So that made me happy at that moment. So anyway, there's always a second or third or fourth chances. Anyway, thanks, Tom. Thanks for the time, and we'll uh, talk to you again soon. Thanks, guys. Take Bye-bye. care. So uh, we have uh, 19 days in a matter of hours left till polls open. Very active state Senate race, other races that will frame political future of the state. Ben, um, I next week I know we'll be looking at uh, some of the congressional races that are uh, making news in the city. So uh, looking forward to that show next week. Yeah, we obviously need to discuss how the congressional battleground, similar to the state Senate, will have a huge impact on the direction of the state and the country. So we'll be digging in a little bit to control of Congress and how New York races fit in. It's not as simple, obviously, as the New York State Senate, which is all within New York, uh, but New York congressional races certainly contributing to the national picture. So remember, election night, live audience show, 5 to 7 p.m. November 6. Register Join for us. That. Join us, RSVP. Make sure you listen to us next Wednesday, 5 p.m. right here on WBAI. We are Max and Murphy covering policy, politics, and people of New York City and New York State. Have a great week.